Hi everybody, I'm Fritz Coleman. Welcome to Game Changers with Vicki Abelson, my next wife. <laughs> I was gonna ask I was gonna ask you about your personal life. Let's, oh, go let's ahead. get right to it. So so is there love in your life, Fritz? Hi everybody. <laughs> Not at the moment, but the night is young. <laughs> Not at the moment. How many marriages? How I many how many significant others? One marriage. Mm -hmm. I have three children, two grandchildren. And, um, uh, but I hope that you know about. No, or no, I'm, listen, I'm, 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 a, I'm a really boring person. But, uh, no, I don't think so. But I hold out hope that at my advanced age, I have accumulated a lot of knowledge. Uh, the combined mistakes I've made should allow me one final shot at it before it's too late. So, do you do, do, you do the online thing? No. no. The online thing you can't do it when you're on TV because oh. it's flypaper. You you draw people from under rocks and <laughs> because they, they, they have an ulterior motive. Right, they just want to get close to celebrities. Right, and it has nothing to do with where on the uh, status ladder you sit in show business. It has nothing to do. Is with that it. true? It's somebody looking for a payday, so you have to be careful. And I'm a little, I'm a little. I, I need to make eye contact. Well, and I believe in that anyway. So so what I have found. You know, hi everybody. I haven't really said hello yet. We're, we're diving right in and, and I have some business we're gonna do, but, th but this is a personal thing because I'm really curious. I have found in LA, there is no meeting anybody in real life. I mean, it's, it's I, for years after I was separated, I did not go online and I, anyone I met either was in a relationship or emotionally unavailable. I mean, I, and people are too cool for the room in LA. I have found in my experience, People don't really connect. It's and not... for the same reason, you and I do not go frequent bars. No, yeah. And no, I mean, glad to admit that. And that's really we're the, sober. Yeah, we'll that's talk the about only that. meeting place. I mean, really, when you think about it, I don't think people meet there. I mean, well, I don't no, go to bars. You could go to but... Coffee Bean and spend five days before you meet another <laughs> person that you would have a conversation with. Them. I know, but this is sad. Mm -hmm. So, what do you do? How do you meet anybody? I don't. Mm -hmm. My life is a black hole of emotional despair. <laughs> I have no. I I, I, I really I, I I I would like to, but I don't. Uh, most of the the dates, okay, uh, dinners uh, are either prearranged by friends out of sympathy, and sadness, or people that I meet around work that I be. I I do much better with people that I am friends with for a while before I go out because I'm more honest and I'm not as self-conscious. I like that. Um, mm -hmm. Samantha's dad uh, was my comedy teacher and we were friends for five years before we started dating. Yeah. That, that seems to work. Better well. for me. Yeah, that's worked better. So, so for me, as a single person in LA for almost nine years, I went long stretches without there being anything of any significance. Does that happen in your life? Well, life. you're on TV. I bet... I bet it's easier for you. But, but, but not for the right reasons. Mm. I, I mean, they assume you're one type of person. Again, I'm more comfortable in environments where I can be myself and they know who I am and it's not about being the person on TV or anything else. It's not about a character. It's, it's just about who you are in the peaks and valleys of your life. And so it's, it's hard 
to meet people that way. It wouldn't be hard to date people under those circumstances if I wanted to, but I had no interest in that. Okay, so now are the women that you meet as a result of your stand-up different than the women you meet as a result of being, a, I, I bet they are, as a, as a result of being on yes. television? Well, my stand-up is much more honest as to who I am. Right. And so if I have a connection to somebody and somebody resonates with what I'm talking about on stage, it's much more meaningful to me. Yeah. But it's not like, please come in my car and take me home. That hasn't happened in many, many years. Usually, <laughs> did you help my mother and I get her walker out to the trunk? <laughs> so, so, so how long has it been since you've had your last significant relationship? A few years. Mm -hmm. Is it something you, you'd like to have, you'd like to bang into again? No, I, I hold out hope that it could happen. Mm -hmm. I, I, I think I would be an easier person to have a relationship with now than I was a while ago. Life has humbled me. Um, uh, I've prioritized my life. You know how stand-up is. Stand-up is a very narcissistic profession. It absolutely and, is. And um, it, 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 uh, it's very difficult to uh, nurture a relationship in the proper way when you're involved and driving forward to get your stand-up career going. But did you have to do that kind of, you, how long have you been a weathercaster? And I'm saying weathercaster and I want to say weatherman. I'm sorry, but we grew up, I grew up with weatherman. A I weathercaster. Okay, so how long have you been doing that? On Christmas Eve, I started my 37th year. Okay, that's insane. No, it's, it's, it's the greatest piece of show business, good fortune, since that lady was discovered at Schwab's farm. <laughs> Seriously, I, I, there isn't a day that goes by. The older I get, the more I appreciate the good luck I've had. I'm so fortunate. I'm All right, well, you know what? All right, hold that thought for a second, because last week, I um, see I'm stuck now on my bling. I neglected to, to thank my, the people that... Um, support me and who make what I do possible and I'm so grateful and Fritz I was telling you uh, before we went on the air that Rick Smolke of Quick Impressions of Chicago has been an angel in my life as soon as he saw women who write on Facebook and this is before we were live on Facebook this is when I would just put up the the YouTube videos after the fact but he's just supported he loved what was happening and he loved the, the people that were entertaining and the community of women you asked me earlier if it's a group of women if it's a it's 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 a group in the sense that we are a community but anybody's invited to join and people join every day i had three new people here for a workshop yesterday so well that was my first exposure to you and what you do was the was the salon the literary right, salon right. where you I came and did a chunk of material right you came and did a piece of your show what you're going to do again because penny said Hi, Penny. She says she wants to feed you her kugel. Penny makes the best kugel, and she is here every month, and she will. She wants to feed you kugel. <laughs> I am ready to be fed kugel. And, and it's a room of, you know, 40, 50 women I that are of our age, so, you I know. I perform under the name Louisa May Alka. <laughs> so, but you so, had a very impressive cross-section of people hearing that there were, there were uh, soap opera stars talking about books, and... Norman Lear. I mean, I was always impressed before I before I. Who did you think was uh, was Elvis Costello? Oh no, I thought that the guy with the glasses was. Uh, oh, who? Where? I this is the wrong box. Was... Where's the other one? No, it's the, there's only one box. Oh okay. Wait. This guy. Oh, that's Ron Zimmerman. Oh, is he gonna love that you said that? He I thought it was like Elvis Costello. He's that's gonna make him so happy, Ron. George. Fritz thinks that you're Elvis Costello. Ron's a, a very uh, successful comedy writer. Oh. And uh, he is, so anyway. He has the hat. He has the hat. And so, so 
Rick Smokey, as soon as he saw what was going on at Women Who Ride, he said, I, I, I want to help you. And there are people like that in this world. And you know what? You're, you're one of those people. For those of you who don't know, aside from the fact that Fritz is the weatherman to end all weathermen and the weathercaster to end all weathercasters and also an incredible stand-up comic and also the writer and performer of his own one-person shows. And the one that you're doing now is called... Defying gravity. Define and, and it's about it's about the euphoria, the ecstasy <laughs> of being over fifty. Yeah, well, I would, I, I could like. It's hear. like a baby boomer support group. That's <laughs> okay. the way I describe it. Well, I, I'm, a, I'm a proud member, and um, I, I need to see that show. So, so if you need anything for your show, if you need cards, you need flyers, you need it, Rick is the guy, and he will do it for you because he supports the arts. And if you need stuff, he's the guy to go to because even though they're in Chicago, they ship everywhere. He's made my tissue boxes. He's made my business cards. They're two-sided and lovely. He's made my bookmarks. He's fantastic, and he's just a good human being. Um, Fritz did a little promo for the veterans before we started. Rick, out of his own pocket, is doing all these PSAs to thank the veterans just because he chooses to, like you choose to do. We're going to get to that stuff, too. And also a fabulous person, my hairdresser. Nicole, I'm dying here. There is so much, I'm, 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 I'm very gray at the moment. But anyway, Nicole is fabulous. I'm going to see her in two weeks. It couldn't come too soon. And she's got this lovely hairspray. Do you see what it's called? I love it. Yes, it's called Fuck Off, which uh, so suits me to a T. But she's fantastic. I, I, I get compliments on my hair every day, and it's because of Nicole. She has a salon in Studio City called the Ruby Begonia Salon. You, you have these pheasant-like feathers, feathers <laughs> I and I thought, wow, uh, how many, uh, what team of professionals did it take to do that? Samantha put the feathers in my hair, good actually. Job, she did a very good job. <laughs> I, that's, that's my team. And you have an endangered species on both ears. <laughs> they, they are not endangered. Oh, no okay. animals were injured okay. in the making of my earrings. Right. And I also want to thank, uh, before we get moving further, my daughter, Samantha Abelson, is behind the camera. And uh, it'll be the last time this trip before, because she's going back to NYU on Friday. This is a very talented family. You were showing me some of her videos. Your heart must be full. My heart is full, and I don't know the woman. I know. My heart is really full. And you got to meet Harry before we yes. started. And he's pretty phenomenal. And for those of you who are into sports, Harry's got in the booth every Sunday. Uh, he goes live at, at 7.30 on Sundays on Facebook. And um, yeah, he's pretty fantastic, too. And, and you, okay, so let's get back to you. So, so you have three kids. Three kids. How many grandchildren? Two. Two grandchildren. And this was, this started, and, and you're sober 30? 30 35 years. So the kids came after the sobriety? Yes. Mm -hmm. So what, what, what was being, was alcohol your drug of choice? Yes. So what, what was being an alcoholic? Weatherman. What, what, what did that look like? I was uh, sober, really. Uh, I got sober at the very beginning of my career. As uh, my father struggled with alcoholism. And um, what I wanted to do was, when I was deciding to get married, and I, I knew I wanted to be a dad, mm -hmm. but I was doing a little self-assessment and thought, what would be my vulnerabilities and not being able to be a good father, and I was—you were doing this while you were drinking. You were having these thoughts. This is uh, very admirable. No, to me. I know. I, I this know. is very admirable. Well, I had my father's awful experience as a as a template. I see. And um, I watched him get sober, and he apologized to me later in his life. It ruined my relationship with him because he was asleep by six o'clock at night. 
And so your father got sober at what stage of your life? Um, Were you still in the house? I was in college, yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh huh. And uh, and I had the genetic predisposition for it because okay. I was working in comedy clubs and you're getting free drinks seven nights a week. It was a recipe for disaster. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, I thought, what would be my Achilles heel as a parent? Okay. Uh, and I thought, I've got to stop drinking. Regardless of whether I'm a good parent or not, mm -hmm. I need to not make alcohol the reason I wasn't a parent. So whatever I turned out to be as a dad, I, I went You out. can't blame it on alcohol. Yes. Okay, so now, so where did you grow up? Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Okay, so, and what did your dad do for a living? He was the vice president of sales of an international uh, construction materials company. They sold large quantities of cement and stone and boards and stuff. And stuff. And so he was successful. He, he, he was very successful. He was a self-made man. So he was a self-made man. He was. I'm just. I'm just clicking here. So no. So I don't want to. I don't want to torture Samantha. That um, she's going to have to tell us when people. But you know, uh, Samantha, I'm giving you permission to interrupt us if, if people have. If you have questions for Fritz, by the way, not right now because I'm going to ask the questions for. Oh, look at all these people. Her Fritz says, look, people love you so much. Look Penny, Penny, who um, his hearts gonna, must be a typo. That, a Penny, thousand hearts. Penny, oh. Teo Penguins, Teo, Fritz was talking about you. Teo, I was talking about okay. you earlier tonight. I had the pleasure of hearing you talk about your book the last time at, when I was at Ricky's. So. And Teo's coming back with his new book, so I think maybe I should bring you back together and you should come back with your new show. In a previous life, I looked and acted like Teo. <laughs> Teo is like this Latino. Latino. Isn't he something? Oh my God. He's, he's actually not Latino. He's Greek. No, I know. Yeah. He, whatever he is, he is a Mediterranean. Yes. And he's handsome. Just, and he walks in the room, and women lose their willpower. <laughs> women, Love you, Teo. Women just go wild. So. Um, an amazing oh, player. and David Laurel. David Laurel says hi. Um, David Laurel, one time um, city councilor for the city of Burbank, photographer. Is that person, is that true? And a great person. Okay, yes. so wait. So what did Teo say? Love that he said. Teo said, "Love that man. So gracious." Oh. Um, but David Laurel told me earlier, see I'm jumping all over the place, but that we'll get back. David told me, to, uh, said that I should ask you about Marlon Brando. Wow. Uh, David's a good interviewer. He interviewed me for the paper a couple times. So uh, are, my, are, you, are you trying to tell me something, Chris? No, 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 not at all. No, no, <laughs> he wasn't no. all over the place no, like no, I no, am. No, but that's, that's fine. It's, yeah. it's sort of improvisational. Like that. Yes. We're, we're so ripping. my first uh, one-person show. Okay was a show called It's Me, Dad, which was about being a parent, a divorced father. How long ago was this? This was uh, 25 years ago. Okay, so you're sober, you're a dad. Yeah, and it's about that. Oh, it's about a I love that, yeah. okay. And, uh, and it was born out of a true experience. Uh, when the my father show. died, mm -hmm. I went to his funeral and it was the most depressing experience, not because of his death, but because I learned how little I actually knew about this man. Because he was an alcoholic, he right. struggled, he was very closed off. Right. And I, didn't, I was not emotionally connected to him as much as I wanted to be. And he didn't reveal a lot about his life. Mm -hmm. And I, I made the promise to myself after his funeral that I would never allow that to happen with my children. So I, at that point, I had two boys. They were uh -huh. about seven and five. So I said, here's what I'm going to do. And I had no idea this was going to be a one-person show. 
I just sat and I wrote out on 10 or 11 uh, legal pads mm -hmm. all of the facts, good and bad, about my life. And I took a camera uh -huh. into uh, my den at home. What was your intention when you started? Uh, my intention was to put this on videotape, mm -hmm. put the videotape in a safe deposit box, and leave a letter to my children Aww. that they would watch this when they were 18 years old because the content was not right for children less than that. Right. So as I was writing this and getting ready to pre prepare it, um, I told some people about this idea and said, what a fantastic idea for a one-man show. The show starts, you walk out on stage, you set up the camera in front of your desk and you start talking. Oh. So that's what it was. Oh. And so I did that show for a year. I workshopped it in a small theater in North Hollywood called Actors Forum. Mm -hmm. And, then, and you're already, though, Fritz Coleman, the weatherman. Yes, I was. So the, you already have some, you have. Yeah. 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 So um, then uh, public television came to see it. KCET came to see the show. Mm -hmm. And they said, we want to produce this show and put it on our air. We think this speaks to fathers. Wow. So they bought the, pro uh, the program. Uh -huh. And they aired it on Father's Day, when, back when KCET was public television. They're no longer Right. They aren't? No, they're not. It's it's uh, K D O C or K O C E is now uh, Southern California Public Television. Okay. Anyway, it's a long mm -hmm. story. But anyway, so they bought it and they aired it on Father's Day seven years in a row. Oh my gosh! I it love was this. about being a dad and about mm -hmm. alcohol struggles with my father and myself and just the honesty of my relationship and our divorce and every. I just wanted my children never to sit at my funeral whenever that happens and not know everything about their dad. That's a very hard thing. So. Wow, I love that. So we, we produced the show, mm -hmm. and KCET built this beautiful set that was directed by one of their special projects mm -hmm. producers, Bodin Zachary, and we did it as a pledge night. And all the anchor people from Channel 4 came over and we did the pledge drive. Nice. And they showed the show. So I get home, this was in the evening, mm -hmm. I get home and I get a call from the executive producer slash director, Bodan Zachary. He said, I'm going to give you a phone number. Mm -hmm. I want you to call this person right now. It's Marlon Brando. Marlon Brando wants to talk to you about your show. Stop! So I said, after I allowed him to convince me it really was Marlon Brando. I have goosebumps. This he, is crazy. He, I called him up mm -hmm. and he was totally against type. You know, How so? He, well... You know, he was at a point in his life where... Wait, he, what year is this? I don't know, 25 like, years ago. So so he's already... He, he was heavy. He was already getting to be the punchline. I was going to say, okay. Right. Yeah. Uh, but also, he's one of the greatest the actors yeah, of, hello. of American history. Yes. And it, I had about a half hour spectacular conversation with him. He wanted to know where I workshopped the show and how long it took me to write it. And he talked about taking um, Streetcar Named Desire on the road and how they reworked it with Tennessee Williams coming in and changing dialogue all the time. You, I'm, I'm like, it I have was, crazy goosebumps here. It was, uh, and I still have. A so he's talking to you as, as, as a piece of the, as a piece okay, of theater. He was talking to me. He said he found it to be intensely moving. He congratulated me for the bravery of doing the piece. And he wanted to know what my process was. Wow. And so I breathed about three times in the half hour. Oh. And uh, I, I even have this... Uh, Thank you for asking me to ask him, David. Yeah, I, I told my story to David. That. David interviewed me for one of the local newspapers. Wow. And, and, uh, and uh, uh, 
I still have a phone book with a handwritten phone numbers in it, like we don't use it. Right. Anymore. And I still have his phone number, 310. Did you ever call him? No. No, I, I just yeah, I just let that moment stand, and I didn't That's want to hear anything. That's a pretty great moment. Yeah, it was spectacular. It was a very validating experience. Wow. Mm -hmm. Okay, so then, so yeah. Then, no, I'm bragging. Yeah, no, brag. I'm doing yeah. uh, I'm doing the show. I workshopped it at this. It was a waiver house. It was sixty seats. You know, there are thousands of them around town on Magnolia Boulevard. Uh huh. And uh, my friend Kelly Lang, who was the anchor person at Channel Four for thirty mm -hmm. years, I was a close friend of. Um, of, uh, of uh, Kirk Douglas and his wife Anne. So one of the closing nights of my show, up rolls a limousine, out gets Kelly Lang and Kirk Douglas, and it comes to this show. At the end of the show, I said, when was the last time you were on Magnolia Boulevard in North Hollywood? <laughs> Never in your career. He, he also was extremely supportive. So I had two little brushes with very talented people that I will always cherish as special moments in my life. And that one you got to actually eyeball to eyeball. Yeah. Wow. We got to talk, and he's, he's very supportive of the artist. And he was already 87 or 88 years old at that time. Now he's 105 or something. It, unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. He, that's pretty crazy. Anyway, that, that's, that's pretty fabulous. Yeah. Okay. So we're going back. So so you're you're in Philadelphia. Yeah. yeah. So you're in Philadelphia. What, when you're a little kid, what do you, uh, so your father's kind of an absentee, kind of not present. Yeah, he was drunk so and asleep at six o'clock. Drunk and asleep. He slept through my teenage years. Okay, and how about your mother? What kind of mother did you have? Uh, she was. Uh, was she Alanonic? Uh, no, she wasn't that involved back then. She kept the family together. Mm -hmm. And I think that if it were a different world, mm -hmm. I think if the world was as forgiving as divorced single women is uh, now. It was such an albatross back then that I'm sure she would have left if she thought she could have had circumstances, she could have pulled herself up out of this you know, thing. But back then... Did she stay married to him until he died? Yes. Mm -hmm. And he got sober because she said, uh, if you don't check yourself into a facility, I'm leaving Tuesday. Oh. And this was a man that could not boil water alone. He was totally dependent on her. Uh -huh. for every aspect of his life, and he was smart enough to realize. So he tried to get sober, and for about two weeks, he went through his own withdrawal and the DTs and everything, mm -hmm. and his doctor said, I'm putting you in a facility, you're gonna kill yourself, you can't do this, because he was a hard drinker for 40 years. Mm -hmm. And uh, so he got sober. I don't know that Did he change their relationship? Yes. Did he change drastically when he got sober? Yes, it he was did. very interesting. Um, he went to a place called Hidden Brook, okay. which was one of the first 30-day programs mm -hmm. on the East Coast, started by the daughter of the DuPont family, the chemical company. Mm -hmm. she, she was an alcoholic and started a place where people could go and have privacy, because back in those days, you never spoke about it. Right. So my dad went to Hidden Brook, and I remember, I'd never seen him sober in my adult life, and we went down there at week two mm -hmm. of the 30-day program to mm -hmm. visit him, and I felt like I was watching a stranger. He, wow. he had all of his energy back. He was, everything was alert. His eyes sparkled. He smiled. Yeah. He was, he was, uh, his energy was up. And I, I didn't know this man. It was wow. so interesting. And so, did your relationship with him change? Yes, I was almost out of the house when right. I was in college, and then mm -hmm. I went in the Navy and a bunch of stuff. So uh, it, it, it changed. But he apologized later in my life. He said, "I apologize for being absent." 
for absent. Did he do like a formal night step events with you? No. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No. Never went to meetings, but, uh -huh. but, but read that 24 hour prayer book every morning. He got up at four o'clock in the morning mm -hmm. and put on a pot of coffee and sat in that chair by himself and went through that prayer book. That, that I, I don't know if it's called like a 24 day devotional or 24 hour devotional. I don't even know if they have it anymore. I but know. he went through that thing four or five times in his sobriety. He got sober at like 58 years old. Uh-huh. And uh, went through that whole thing. Anyway. Whatever works. Yep. And so did the quality of your mother's life improve? Obviously yes. it did. Yes. Yeah. Good for her. Yeah. So so, what, so growing up in this, what was your first dream? What did you want to be when you grew up? I, I was always... The, 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 the people that I... Not heroes, but the people who I was attracted to mm -hmm. were... Johnny Carson and Bob Hope. Me too. Their ability to manipulate people with fast pattern. I thought, wow, what a great power. And uh, Not Bob Hope for me, but Johnny Carson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those are the people that made me want to do it for a living. And so so that's what you, so you knew right away. That was the first thing you wanted to do. I didn't know I wanted to do, do stand-up. Uh-huh. I, 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 I wanted to do stand-up after having seen George Carlin perform mm -hmm. for the first time. Mm -hmm. And then Robert Klein for mm -hmm. the first time. And I didn't understand uh, how stand-up worked. I mean, I'd seen uh, people on the Ed Sullivan show and on the Jack Parr show. Right. And small three and five minute snippets. But I went to see George Carlin in a place called the Valley Forge Music Fair. Mm -hmm. on the, you're from New York. Mm -hmm. On the East Coast, they have these things called summer music festivals where sure. they put up these tents. Mm -hmm. They're like... Cirque du Soleil tents, mm -hmm. and they're spectacular, 3,000 seats right. with a rotating stage, uh -huh. and I went to see George Carlin, and he did about 90 minutes, and I could not believe that someone could talk to the audience so effortlessly and mm -hmm. seemingly unrehearsed for 90 minutes with no notes or anything, not that, you know, it took him five years to work this material. Right, of course. And I, it, was a, it was a mystical experience to me. I, I, I didn't think at that point that I could du duplicate it myself, but I thought uh, he was like a shaman. It was unbelievable. I, I totally agree. Hi, Kelly, his daughter. I, I, I love Kelly, and and uh, we we my Samantha grew up around around the corner from where George Carlin grew up, and the street around the corner from our house has been renamed George Carlin Way. And uh, Gabe got to Samantha's dad got to um, he was his hero and. When Gabe was up at David Letterman, he got to uh, converse with George, and George called the house, and I got to talk. Uh, George was, yeah. George was, yeah. but uh, so so. What I'm finding fascinating that I didn't know about you. So your my original dream was to be. My father was a master of ceremonies. I wanted to be Johnny Carson. So what did that look like for you? Like what what? So what was that? What was the dream? How did well, you see you know, yourself? I never sat down and wrote on a piece of paper. I want to be Johnny Carson. Okay, but, but what, how did you see? What did you see your career to be when you were envisioning it? I. It started. It kind of slowly evolved. Okay. Uh, I was in radio for fifteen years. Okay, wait. As a kid, in school plays, are you doing that? Yes, what? I was a, a, a show off. A show off with raw chops, and you know the classic. It's that boring, cliche story about uh, unhealthy attention of being attracted to yourself. <laughs> All that. And, uh, so were you like doing plays in the living room for your yes, parents? You're yes. When I knew I might stand a chance, is and uh, your daughter may have had this experience. Did you ever do Reader's Theater, which is like you have a cast of people, 
and you have a script on music stands and you read the script, you don't memorize it, but you create this sort of theater of the mind thing. They call it Reader's Theater when I was in college the first time. And we did that and we won like West Virginia State Awards in the Salem to Salem College. Wow. Thought, oh, maybe, maybe this is, so that kind of directed me into spoken word a little bit. And uh, then I saw George and then I saw Robert Klein and then I said, when I was in radio, I had an opportunity to try some stand-up at an open mic night. I said, mm -hmm. I want to try it. And I and uh, I had the misfortune of doing reasonably well the first time. Yeah. Okay, so now wait. That's before you did before you did the stand-up for the first time, mm -hmm. did you write an act? Did you just go no, up there and wait? No, I didn't wait anything. Okay. I was too afraid to wait. Okay, so you wrote everything. you wrote an act. Mm -hmm. Did you try it out somewhere before no, you? No, I tried it out on an open mic night. On an open mic night, mm -hmm. and you got laughs. Yeah. And not killer laughs. Okay. They would be unsatisfactory laughs now, but I was not <laughs> assaulted. Nobody threw anything. And I got some titters and it was pretty good. How old were you? 30, 32. So wait, what did you do after between 20 and 30? What were you doing? So I, I, I went to college the first time mm -hmm. after I graduated from high school and failed miserably. And this was during the Vietnam War. And what did you go to college for? What was your course was, of study? I went to college to spend as much of my parents' money as I possibly could. <laughs> Where did you go? Reason. I went to Salem College in Clarksburg, West Virginia. Okay. And that's when I got involved in the Reader's Theater. Mm -hmm. So then I, I failed miserably. They have an 18-year-old drinking age down there, what they call this 3-2 beer, yes. which, is, which will seriously damage your kidneys. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and that's all it was for me. It was a complete waste of my parents' money. And so, and that was a period of time when, during the Vietnam War, they had the draft. And if you dropped below a C level in college, you lost your college deferment. Oh. So I got home for. Did early. they have the lottery in your day? It was after that. It was after the lottery. And so, uh, no, I mean the lottery was after this. This was. Oh, oh, draft. oh! Before this is before the lottery. Yeah. Gotcha. And so I got home and I got a letter from the Pentagon saying we we considering you for admission, please come and get a physical. So I went down and got a physical, I thought, ooh, I don't mind serving my country. I think I could do it in a way other than gun-oriented service to my country. So I immediately went and enlisted in the Navy, and it was the best thing I ever did. So I worked for Armed Forces Radio and Television for four years in the Navy on a ship. Now how did you get, did you have experience in radio? I had no experience. They were so that's where volunteers. you, that's yes. where you first they got it. introduced me to my career. It was unbelievable. Wow. A, a great stroke of, my life has been a series of, 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 of wonderful fortunes. Wonderful, so did you, did you choose that or did you get picked for that, the Armed Forces Radio? The opportunity presented itself and I went and uh, applied for the job. I was on a ship, okay. I was on an aircraft carrier mm -hmm. called the John F. Kennedy in Norfolk, nice. Virginia, and I had gone to eight weeks of electronic school mm -hmm. and when we got on the ship, the word was out that they were looking for volunteers to man the shipboard television and radio system. I said, that sounds cool. I want to do that. So I went and applied for the job, and I got it. And I got transferred out of the electronics division to public affairs, and we did it. So what, so what were you doing? I was doing newscasts every night. I was doing a four-hour radio show in the morning for 6 to 10 o'clock. And you had no prior training? No. So you got on-the-job training? So the, the, the beautiful thing about a government job is it doesn't matter how bad you are. <laughs> As long as you reasonably fulfill your obligation, yes. do the allotted time, and shower occasionally, you've got the game. So there was a gift in that because yes. you could be really bad and make mistakes. In the commercial world, you're only allowed to be bad so often before you get fired. Yeah. But I was there for four years, and it allowed me to be bad, which was a gift.
And so did you, were you also honing comedic skills while you were doing it? A little bit when I was no. on the air. Oh, Unofficially, right. you know, ad libs and fast patter and that kind of thing. Nothing formal. I wasn't writing out. So things. basically, you're reading the news. Yeah, I, and I, being I, a I, DJ. Yeah, yeah, right, right. I was doing that. Then I get out and I went to Temple University for two years. Okay. And I went back into radio and I was a DJ and a production director and a music director and a talk show host. And where are you doing this? All over Philadelphia and upstate New York, Syracuse, Buffalo, New York. Okay, this is where you have a connection to Louise Palanker because right, she's right, upstate New York right, person. Right, okay, yeah. and then uh, while I was in New York, or mm -hmm. while I was in Buffalo, New York, uh, I, I was smitten by the stand-up bug, and I thought I want to try this. And uh, when in those days when you worked in radio, mm -hmm. you were given opportunities to MC nights at nightclubs. Oh, nice! And so I got to MC these nights. And I began to write a little material for myself. And I emceed a night at a jazz club in Buffalo called the Trafamador Cafe, which is a very famous jazz room. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I, I built five, ten minutes of jokes in the mm -hmm. beginning, and I got some notoriety for that. And then the owner of the club came to me and said, we want you to do a, um, a comedy night. We're going to give you a dark night, Monday night. You'll bring comics in. You'll bring them in from Yuck Yucks in Toronto and all the comedians in Canada and New York. And so we did our own night, and I got started, and I got smitten. And I had a solid 10 minutes of material. I thought, well, I'm certainly ready for L.A. with 10 minutes of material. I came out to Los Angeles. And you're in your 30s when this is happening? Yeah. And I went to the comedy store, paid my way in, and sat in the audience. Yeah. And on the stage that night were Billy Crystal, Jimmy Walker, <laughs> Gary Shanley was getting ready for his first Tonight Show. And then Charles Fleischer, who was a Aww. brilliant, you know, Charles. Yeah, I saw him on Facebook tonight, yeah, actually. He's a, yeah. a, a brilliant human being. Mm -hmm. And all it did was make me want to kill myself. <laughs> I thought, you are so woefully underprepared to be in L.A. But I thought, well... Well, that was quite a lineup you saw. Oh, my oh. God. Mm -hmm. but, it was, I, but I realized what a neophyte I was. Mm -hmm. So I thought, well, I'll stay here till my $5,000 runs out. And then I'll go back home with my tail between my legs, and I'll work in a gas station. So wait, you're not you're not weather casting yet. No, no. 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 So I'm getting okay. There. Okay. okay. So uh, I, I'm. I. It took me two years of open mics at the comedy store to become a paid regular. Nice. Okay. So in 1982, mm -hmm. I'm a paid regular, and my friend that works at NBC, mm -hmm. John Beard, who was an anchor man for many years and worked at Fox, uh, said, "I'm bringing my boss and his wife down here to see you perform." Tonight. So he brings his boss and his wife down to see me perform. Uh, it was a Friday night. Mm -hmm. And I talked on stage about some anecdotes about being forced to do the weather in the Navy for Armed Forces Television, but not knowing anything about it. But they didn't care that I didn't know anything about it. Mm -hmm. Again, just fill the time. You know. Right. Now, please don't use profanity. Uh-huh. So after the show's over, he brings his boss backstage to meet me downstairs in that little. Did you have this whole clean cut look going on then? Yeah, I mean. I just, yeah, it's who you are. Right. Yeah. So the guy introduced himself. He said, "I know this is an odd question, but do you have any desire to come to Channel Four and do some vacation relief filling for me? I have a main weatherman that hasn't had a vacation in a year. I need some help on weekends." Would you have any desire to audition for that gig? And I was. This making, is a Schwab story. I, I, this I was, is crazy. I was making forty-five dollars a night at the comedy store. I said, right. "Oh my God, when do you want me to start?" 
And can I please carry your wife to the car? Thank you very much. <laughs> so he said, well, you have to audition. So I auditioned the following Tuesday. Uh -huh. I was told Thursday I had the job. Wait, what is an audition for a weathercaster? I had to go in and do a weathercast in front of a green screen. And so you're standing in front of a green screen, nothing's With maps yeah. and making up crap. And but but you've that. never done it before. No. so It's all about presentation. Okay. First of all, there's no weather in L.A. So you just yeah. just It's always sunny. Smile and, you know. <laughs> Yes. It's morning clouds and fog, hazy afternoon sun. <laughs> that, that's, that's the show. So uh, I did the audition, and then they had to get it approved by New York and all. Uh -huh. And I was told on Thursday I had the job. Oh. I started on Christmas Eve of 1982. Uh, when my predecessor left to go to work at CBS, I was bumped up to the weekday job, and I've been there 37 years. This is just a crazy Seriously. story. Um, I mean... Just because a friend brought in, that's your angel. What an angel yeah, that well, is. I would like to thank that angel personally. Wow. Because uh, I am I am the gift of some astonishing good luck. I really am. That is an extraordinary story. Okay, so so you started doing that. How did the getting sober and the developing the stand-up, what, what so, happened from that? It was just uh, then I, I was sort of unofficially engaged. So you weren't a drunk. No, I was somebody who was relying on alcohol for my happiness, though. Okay. What? So what did what did that look like for you? That looked like I couldn't wait to starting at noon. I looked forward to going home and having several glasses of wine at night. But you weren't drinking all day long. No. No, you weren't that no, kind of drunk. No, okay. No. Uh huh. And I was working in clubs and you get free drinks and it was just a recipe mm -hmm. for disaster. Mm -hmm. I, I I had to get out of this habit. Mm -hmm. And I, I God bless my father. I had his suffering. Uh, that um, I could hearken back to and know all the telltale signs of myself because I had a personality very similar to my father's. I just saw, ooh, like, this trend, sit, like, I see, you, this you, like you would check out, like your father? And mm. Type A mm -hmm. personality and a, a crusty exterior to hide emotions and not being honest and people-pleasing and all that. Mm. All the, all the... So now we've come full circle. We started out with getting sober because you wanted to be a dad and you wanted to be a different kind of dad. So here I we didn't are know again. what kind of a dad I would be because I had this marginal relationship. I was an only child. First okay. Time. And I had this marginal relationship with my own father. Mm -hmm. And I, 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 I wasn't sure. I wanted to be a dad, mm -hmm. but I wasn't sure how I would be. But I just wanted to, I wanted to uh, cut my losses and make, if, if I failed at it, something I couldn't control, mm -hmm. I didn't want it to be about it. That's okay. So how did you? So you made this decision. Were you already married? I was married mm -hmm. May twenty fifth, nineteen eighty four. Okay. Two months before that, March, I made that decision. I'm going to stop drinking before I get married. Did you nobody go, believe me? Did you go to a program? You did it on I your own. Stopped. You just stopped. I stopped. I had to stop. So you stopped through self will. Yeah. And you did haven't you had a drink since. No. Did you ever go to meetings? You never, no, that, you never no, did that thing? No, no. But alcohol was controlling my life. Wow. I didn't want to be in social situations where I couldn't drink. I was thinking about it all day. All those things. I never slept in a gutter overnight. I never mm -hmm. let myself get that far. Mm -hmm. And I thank my father's experience for giving me the ability to see that train coming down the tunnel before it got to me. So. And so, and through all these years, any there's never been a thought of... Having a drink? Or? Oh, I mean, yeah, no. Yeah. On hot days, oh, a beer would taste really good now, but I, I don't do it because it's just not for me. 
-hmm. I'm so thankful that I'm sober. Wow. That's, that's a hell of a story, because I, I don't know too many people that have been able no, to do it on their own. No, and a lot of people say, well, you weren't all full-on drunk. But, uh, but I, that's not where I gauge no. my alcoholism with. Mm -hmm. I, I gauge it on how it controlled my life yeah. and how it preoccupied me every day, and that, that's bad. It was better. It could have gone a couple steps farther. Okay, so you so you get this job as a weatherman. Mm -hmm. You're sober now. You're you have a young family. What happens with the stand up? What's going? I keep on there? working. I mean, uh, my my all of my bosses and I have made this unofficial bargain. Okay. And that is that I can continue to perform in local clubs and whatever I want to do. Just don't bring, I, I have a contract at NBC. Right. Just don't bring embarrassment to the station. So I work clean in clubs because I don't want anybody complaining to my boss because he has his brand to worry about. Right. I, I totally understand that. Right. Because contractually, if they wanted to be sticklers, they could insist that I don't perform in public, you know, uh, because. And they don't have a problem with you talking about get you know getting sober or no. that no. so so it's just about being working clean no yeah they were they were they just want they they Polit but uh, can't I like, be political. Cannot uh, be political. okay so that's what i'm wondering like so you have to be kind of politically correct i'm assuming as part i of don't your... do correct yeah, yeah i don't do bill Maher. yeah yeah i do observational material about common experience like right. i'm getting old right First of all, it has a longer shelf life. Yes. You know? And second of all, there's so many guys doing it really well, and I just don't do it. I don't do political jobs. All right, so before we move on, I have to say that, um, so a, a few months, six months ago, I went to see um, Seinfeld on Seinfeld, uh, the premiere, and um, it was a very Tony audience, and in fact, Super Dave Osborne was there, and oh, that was, um, yeah, the last time I got to see him. And, and so sitting two rows behind me was Jay Leno, and sitting next to Jay Leno was who I thought was Fritz Coleman. And I turn around and I'm going, Fritz, Fritz, and no reaction. I'm going, Fritz, and I'm like standing up. And of course I realized like 10 minutes. So he's looking at me and he goes, you think I'm somebody else, don't you? And I said, oh, it's Jimmy Brogan. Of course you're with Jay Leno. And so today even, as I'm tagging you on Facebook, it as soon as I put your picture up, it puts Jimmy Brogan. Right. So this is something, we were talking about this before we went on air, this is something that's happened to you for years, I assume. Well, you know, when he was Jay's head writer, yeah. we all worked in the same building over there. And he oh, went out hey, hey, what's the weather going to be this weekend? And you could see the steam coming out of his head. He was insulted <laughs> by that. To me, I thought it was fantastic. And it also happened. Oh, some people were you know asking him the weather. With, it happened oh. with Harry Anderson. They oh. thought that Harry Anderson was me and vice versa. Wow. And for him, you know, he was a huge TV star. Yes. It was, it was a, a come down. He was People asking for the weather. weather. Jimmy Brogan, <laughs> not a bad thing. You know, it's not the worst thing. Right. But, but Harry Anderson was insulted. Well, so, so tell the story that you told me about when you Well, were Jimmy doing... and I used to work, and still do work in the same clubs periodically, but we used to work at Igby's in West LA, which is a mm -hmm. wonderful club owned mm -hmm. by Jan Smith. Lots of famous people discovered there. And it was just for fun, Jan would put us up adjacent to one another. So... <laughs> People thought they were having <laughs> For those of you who Jimmy don't know who are on Facebook, just just put in the in the search thing Jimmy Brogan and you will see right. basically this face. Jimmy's been a guest on the show recently, actually. The two of us on stage look like two Presbyterian ministers. <laughs> we're very straight, pale, tall, white American guys. 
And uh, the fact that they could find two that looked as similar and put them on one stage. It, it, it's, it, it, it's amazing how much you guys look alike. And like. the single nicest human being in our business. Well, you know, I, a lot of people will say that about you, Fritz. As a matter of fact, tonight, uh, this happens at the last time that when you did Women Who Write, and, and tonight when I did this, I start hearing from everybody who adores you. So my friend Les July. I mean names. My, I mean I'm, names give, I'm giving you names. So my friend Les July, who is a bass player, um, who I know from New York, the last time you were on, and this time, wrote to me both times and said that you saw him at the China Club in LA, and went up to him afterwards and said, you are excellent. And this happened, I don't know how many years ago, but Les has carried that memory around, and it means so much to him. I love it. And everybody who, whenever, you know, I remember the last time when you were here, and Kathy Ladman was sick that she had to miss it, and just everybody who knows you. Uh, uh, Judy uh, Orbach got on today and was saying that you filled in recently, Wendy Arker and Wendy Liebman, who has two broken legs, oh my God, got hit by I, a That's car. when I saw you, I was so that's happy. Right. You know what was great about that? First of all, she is a universally loved performer. Unbelievable. And, and, I mean, they could have made a TV show out of the people who showed up at her house just to see how her leg was doing. She had an amazing party. Oh that's where we ran into each other again, and there were all kinds of people from, people that I know from so different... Was all, yeah. From all aspects of show business were there. She's a really a, a loved person. That was so much fun. Yeah, she's very beloved, and and she was supposed to do her and Jeffrey was supposed to do Game Changers that that Wednesday after the party, and she had a fall. I know. You know, yeah. Oh, well, you know, yeah. But the thing about her is that even in, I mean that was a scary scary moment. She had another car accident a few years ago, which almost took her life too. Which was terrifying um, as well. well. Yes. Not, not really that far from where she had this. Right. One. But her attitude coming out of it is positive, and she sends love immediately, and there's immediately. no depression, there's no doubt. Maybe there is, but I, she doesn't, she doesn't do show it. Yeah. And what she projects, and so there she is, two broken legs, she's holding court, everybody in the world is at her house, it's just the most amazing party, and she's in the best of spirits, with, without you know, a bit of malice or nah. yeah, self-pity, it's pretty fabulous. Um, so, and so you still do that as well? You still MC and host? Yeah, I filled in for her. She's had a series of people filling in for her because she's unable to do it and they all miss her. She's developed a great little show over yes. there. Yes. Mm -hmm. It's really quality. And I was so... Homegrown. Yeah. Home, uh, locally home, grown. Locally grown. And I was fortunate enough to have the chance to MC on the night when Kevin Rooney did stand-up for the first time in like 20 years. Is that true? And he, and you know, he, he had a stroke. And he was reading it off of his iPad, and it was brilliant. And I had forgotten what an amazing writer he was. Wow. He was political, and he was, and he was uh, uh, politically incorrect, and it was fantastic. It How was excellent. so good. How and everybody excellent. showed up to see him. Larry Miller oh. and Paul Provenza and all these guys from my class of comedians. Right. Uh, and it, it was fun. So I got to film it for her. That's so excellent. And so you're, you're four-time Emmy winning. Mm -hmm. Four times. Yeah. Well, in the early days at Channel 4, mm -hmm. um, they would allow me to do some comedy specials. I did one called The Perils of Parenting, uh -huh. where I interviewed people who were becoming parents late in life. And I had Ed McMahon, because he was on his second or third family, and a, a bunch of other people. And uh, we won an Emmy for that one. And a couple of the shows I did earlier, these are local Emmys, not national. Yeah, there's still Emmys. Oh, yeah. There's still for Emmys. Me, for me, it was a big deal. Like, so what is that like when you win your first Emmy? 
It's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, did yeah, your father? Did your father? Did your father live to see? Yes, my father. I am so thankful that my dad was uh, alive for the beginning of my success. Early in my career, I used to uh, be invited to fill in for Al Roper on the Today Show uh, for two weeks over the holiday. Mm -hmm. They would put you up in Central Park South, and you'd go, and it was like another world completely. But he was alive to see that. He was alive to see my Tonight Show appearances. Mm -hmm. And I performed on a Bob Hope special one time. That was even more important to him than Johnny Carson. He felt so, really? He felt nonplussed about Johnny. But he loved Bob Hope because he was that World War II era. Right. So that's when I made it, when I was on the Bob Hope show. And so what was that like it was cool. for you? The, 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 the flavor of this show was a Christmas special. Mm -hmm. It was called HNN, the Hope News Network. Mm -hmm. And I was the weatherman on the Hope News Network. And then I did a bit with Brooke Shields where I played her boyfriend, and Tony Randall was her father. Oh my God. And uh, uh, Marriott Hartley or somebody was the mom. I mean, all these. Fantastic. Uh, what, and what's wrong with this picture? What's this weatherman doing here? But it was fantastic. And so what was it like doing The Tonight Show? It was, well, it, you know. You've got so tell, tell, walk me through that experience the first time. Um, well, it's, 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 it's your comedy bar mitzvah, you know. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and um, the first time I got on, um, I had been bumped twice. I don't know if you remember the old format for the Tonight Show. Oh, okay. yeah. was in the middle. Right. Like midnight, five after to ten after. Right. And if the headliner went long, mm -hmm. the comic got bumped every time because they had to, you know, back time the show. Right. right. So uh, the first time I was on. Yeah. Um, Heather Locklear was the guest, and Johnny was enamored with her, and so I she bet. was one that I got bounced. The second time I was on, Charles Grodin got a little verbose, and they bumped me for that. So by the time, you know, you can only call everybody you know in your life so many times, so please stay up and watch me. Let us know when it's over, tell us how it went. We'll take it. So, um, What but, year is this that you get on, approximately? 85. Okay. Yeah. So, um, I finally made it on, and it's this blur of white light, and it's the most spectacular feeling in the world. Did uh, you talk to Johnny? Did I, you did have a I didn't. I okay. didn't get called over. I didn't really have one of those moments. Right. Uh, but I made it on. I was on there eight times. I got on with Johnny and Joan Rivers and Jay and Shanley, because the beauty of it was my office was right upstairs. Mm -hmm. If they had a fallout, do you have a, a hip six you can come down and do? And I said yes. And so, and that's really, that's the way to do it so you don't have two months to get nervous, so. Wow, yeah. did you really do it on the fly like yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. Wow. And so as a weatherman, as a weathercaster. That was the hook, I was a weatherman doing comedy. And, and Jim McCauley, do you remember Jim? Yes, I do. Jim gave me the tagline for the end of my first piece. He said, I'd love to chat, but I have to go back upstairs and do the weather. <laughs> and it got the biggest laugh in the whole set. <laughs> so, so. How how often you, doing the weather? How often during your career were you able to to go out and do stand up? I would do two or three sets a week. Mm -hmm. I mean, not as much as because that's you, to do stand up. You usually you got to be out there night after night after night. So I do the improv and I would do the comedy store and the ice house and Igby's and mm -hmm. some of these other places. I worked at a jazz room on the west side called At My Place, which was wonderful because you were the MC and the only comedian. And you got to work with all these great session musicians, uh, like Billy Beer and the Beaters, these wonderful acts mm. down there. So, I mean, I, I got 
to do as much as my job in Atlanta because the 11 o'clock news was tough. So yeah. I'd go and do a set, you know, first show and then go back and do the news. Oh, because the news is live. So wait, what time? You're, you're at five is your first? I do five and 11 o'clock. Five and 11. At that point, I was doing four, five, six, and 11. Whoa. So I would do a split shift, and I still do. I would work from like noon to 6.30, and then be back at about nine o'clock and work till midnight. So what's your day? So do you live close by? So that I do. I live two miles from the station. Okay, so what? What? So what's your day? That's good. What's your day like? Because that's it's a split shift's yeah. got to be physically rough. Uh, but kind of. The beauty is you can go home and take a nap if you how long are you there when you're there for a shift? I'm working, well, you're 100% you're responsible for your own presentation. Okay. So when I'm there, I go in and research what the weather story is going to be, put together the maps. Wait a minute, you do that? Oh, yeah. Everybody, whoever. So you are really a media meteorologist? I'm not. No, we rely, I'm a weather presenter. I'm not a meteorologist. Okay. A meteorologist is somebody that has a degree in atmospheric sciences. Okay. A Bachelor of Science in Meteorology. I don't have that. And that person is not the person who's preparing the news. There is not a meteorologist preparing no, the weather. I mean, we you use are... the work of meteorologists. I have meteorologists on my staff at Channel 4. Not my staff, in the weather department. Okay. And, and, and they all participate. But you're really responsible. Because we use the National Weather Service, which oh. is a government agency. Okay. So, we're so, so tell me what you do. So you get there, you get there for your shift, and what do you, what do you do? Where are you looking? Well, you, you, as a weathercaster, you're like any other television news reporter. Okay. You have to tell a story. Okay. So the first thing you do is decide what your story is going to be. Today it's copious amounts of rain. So then you go to work, and you go on the National Weather Service website and your other resources, mm -hmm. and you find the material you need to tell your story. How much rain we're going to get, when's it going to stop raining, is there a mudslide danger, is there a flooding danger, when will the heavens And you're, you're deciding, I'm, I'm you're deciding, doing I'm these deciding. things. And then I go build my program on the weather computer, which is this uh, computer that's built very much like an AVID system, which is what they edit movies on. Okay. And you design your little flow of a show. You, but now you don't, ha the, the computer will tell you what it's going to be in Riverside, what it's going to be. No, I have to research that and then put do, it into these. Do graphics. you really? Oh, yeah, I manufacture the graphics. So, really? Oh, so yeah. now how long does it take you to prep a news? A couple hours. But now we have other responsibilities. We have social media responsibilities. Well, oh, so what is that like for a weathercaster? Well, it's good. You get to uh, create uh, content for the website. We do Facebook Live, for instance. Since we have this weather that's sort of threatening, we'll do Facebook Lives and, you know, a couple times a day sometimes. So, so what time do you go to work? I go to work around noon or 1 o'clock. Uh -huh. I work till 6.30. Now, how much of that is, is prepping? All of it. And then, but then there's also the social media stuff. Yeah, that's all part yeah, of your, your right. thing. Mm -hmm. So you're there till 6? Six, 6.30. And then? And then I have dinner. And then I go home. Mm -hmm. Or sometimes I go to a speaking engagement. I'm asked to be a dinner speaker. We're, we're going to talk about that too. Yeah. And then uh, I'm back about 9 o'clock. If it's a quiet night, not tonight, we would never leave the building tonight because it's all hands on deck. But, so what does that mean? So so when there's a lot of when weather, there's weather like, when there's a lot of weather. Well, all weather is threatening in Southern California. A tenth of an inch of rain can cause 800 accidents on the freeway. Oh so even I was on the freeway yesterday. Every, literally, there was an accident. Yeah, every it's it, it's, it's crazy. And so all weather is severe out here because we have seasonal rain. Mm -hmm. And so when we have days like this, then we tag team and we stay on the premises and we're there. For the most 
Because you're keeping people up to date with Well, the yes, and if there's an emergency, it's our job to tell people. Then it's a public safety issue. Because people, are, people were being evacuated. evacuated yeah. It's our job to tell people about that as quickly as possible. So that's now, why. do you have to research where the evacuations are happening? Are they well, telling that, you that's, that? That's the news part of the story. Okay. But after they establish where the evacuation is, then it's my job to tell them why they're being evacuated because it's raining an inch an hour and it's a lot of rain. Yeah. Wow. So the reason that you're here with us and you're not at work tonight, you're not having to go back, is because what happened to you, Fritz? Well, I had a little uh, medical mishap where I had a 90% collapse in my left lung a couple of weeks ago. And it's just an odd thing, and, and we're, we're really not sure of the reason why it happened, but we think it might have had something to do with a previous medical procedure I had where I had a lot of anesthesia for about four hours, mm -hmm. and it did something to one of my lungs. So I thought I had a congested chest. I, I mean, the, the honestly, the uh, symptoms were not that severe, but I only had about a third of my breathing capacity. Because you're a, cy a cyclist? I, I ride a bike five mm -hmm. or six days a week for an hour. Yeah. That's and, a lot. And, and I was using it for the first time in my life. I'm using the elevator at work like a 90-year-old cripple. So, and so How many floors? Three. And, and, and you usually seven. walk it. Oh, yeah, it's part of my steps, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, do you I, have a Fitbit? I was no, no. I don't need to be reminded. You no, and you don't need to because you're fit. You do it. Yeah. You just do it. So uh, I, I thought I had maybe a bad chest cold or maybe the start of pneumonia with this restricted breathing. So my doctor gave me a Z pack that wasn't working, and he said, "Come in, let's get an X-ray." And I got an X-ray. He put me right in the hospital. Right how how long were you, were you feeling it? I was. It was fast. It was four or five days. Oh, so from you start to finish. And the only uh, sensible thing I did was to not dwell on it and let's go in and get this handled and I'm so glad I did. And that's really good advice. I, I can't even tell you how many people on the Facebook feed today were talking if they were in the hospital for this and for that. And for so many people are... Well, I'll tell you, I look at it as part of character development mm -hmm. because I'm very blessed that I have not had a lot of medical issues in my life. I had a couple with no extended hospital stays, but I have so much empathy mm. for people who are bedridden. Because I was only on my back for five days in the hospital, but I was coming out of my skin. Were you? Type A, mm -hmm. uh, and you know, you're, you're depressed and you're reliant on other people for your comfort, and it's, it's awful. I, I, I just, it, 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 I, it made me appreciate my life even more. I know that sounds dramatic, but it's no, very no, true. No. I wasn't used to it, so. It really made me feel feel special empathy for people who have mm -hmm. ongoing medical issues and they're bedridden and have, can't can't help it. So. so, so the last thing that I want to talk to you about, or maybe something else will happen afterwards, but you have this whole aspect of your personality. Uh, Fritz is a you, you've been awarded incredible humanitarian. How did public service become? Did you grow? Were your parents? Yes. Okay, so where did that come from? My, my mother uh, was a post-war American housewife mm -hmm. with a husband who was insistent that she not be employed because oh. it was no, no wife of mine is going to work. She's going to stay home and have the dinner parties. And, well, mm -hmm. my mom did not feel fulfilled under those circumstances. So she got a volunteer job with what was called the Gray Ladies, which was a volunteer organization at a local hospital mm -hmm. 
and did that for many years and became the head of this volunteer organization. Now, was this while you were a little kid? Yeah, while well, uh, I was growing up. Uh. And, uh, and, and, and it was the great satisfaction of her life. Mm -hmm. And my father was like a civic leader. They had little neighborhood oh. you know, organizations. Mm -hmm. And it was just always part of our life. And then after I got into radio and TV, um, we would always get invited to do these events and they became the most satisfying part of my job. I, you know, I, I, I often said that uh, doing work with the Salvation Army or Shelter Partnership or, or, or Salvation the Salvation Army is huge for you. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, it's much more satisfying uh, when I put my head down at night uh, than being inaccurate about the weather four or five days a week. <laughs> On the personal satisfaction scale, you know, you, you feel like you're making a difference. And uh, so it's very important to me to do it. It's the best part of my job, quite honestly. And it's something you've been doing for a long time, ongoing. Right. ongoing. Right. Uh, what, what's, what's got your, what, what, like these days, what, what's, what's got your attention? Well, I do work with Shelter Partnership, which is a wonderful organization. And they have a brilliant business model because it doesn't take that many people to run it. Mm -hmm. I'm not a big fan of doing a lot of fundraising for organizations that have a big bureaucracy, mm -hmm. and so you're paying for office supplies. Right. I, I, want, I want people to feel the benefit of whatever you're doing, you know. And so Shelter Partnership is this organization that goes to large companies mm -hmm. like Gillette or Procter & Gamble mm -hmm. or Palmolive, and these people change the packaging on their product all the time. They change their logo, the art changes, the product doesn't change, but they clear the shelves of all these thousands of items only because they're changing the packaging. And so Shelter Partnership goes to the organization and says, would you like to donate us? So they get 10,000 razors from Gillette, wow. or they get five pallets of diapers, or they get, these are the basic necessities, and they have a, a warehouse mm -hmm. in the city of Bell, mm -hmm. and then I don't know where that is. A hundred, it's in East Los Angeles, a very okay. industrial area, mm -hmm. and and then a hundred and sixty homeless organizations around Southern California requisition certain supplies, and Shelter Partnership supplies them. With How this. wonderful! And it's it's very sad. What a practical and yeah, yeah. and, and it, right from and it only takes ten people to run this. Wow! Uh, they've given away like three hundred million dollars worth of stuff in the twenty years they've been. Oh running. my gosh! So like, what do you do on behalf of? Uh, I do their fundraising dinners. I do public speaking on their behalf. If I do a, a speaking engagement that uh, I'm I'm allowed to do speaking engagements. Uh, contractually at Channel 4, okay. but I can't be paid for them. But I will accept an honorarium for a nonprofit organization. Nice. So, you know, it can be. Well, how do they differentiate between it's okay for you to do stand up and be paid for it, but it's not okay for you to do yeah, public, but I mean, public speaking? I, 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 the stand up ones I don't get paid large amounts of money for, you know. And also, the public speaking is, I guess, different. Good public relations for the stage. Right, right. So, so tell us about the show that you're doing now. It's called Defying Gravity. Now, most of my stand-up uh, just uh, that started with that one called It's Me, Dad, that I told you about, my mm -hmm. father, the PBS. And from there, what was next? And the next one was called The Reception, which was me narrating through the use of 800 high-definition photographs an imaginary wedding reception and putting myself in the midst of all these little social nuggets. And it was a lot of fun. That was the one Louise Polanco produced. Hi, Louise. And uh, Louise. And, uh, and then I did one called Tonight at 11, which was about the news business. Mm -hmm. And then this one is called Defining Gravity. It's just 
really, it's a 90-minute show about common experience of being over 50 and getting old. And I'm having a blast. And so you have shows that they're sold out. But so for people out there that are in L.A. and I'm looking to see who we should be I'm at the Ice House to. in Pasadena. Uh, at least one night a month with my own night, I have an opening act and I do my full show there. Uh, I'm at the Camino Real Playhouse in San Luis Obispo. I'm sorry, in uh, San Juan Capistrano this Saturday, but those shows are sold out. And I'm around, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll find me. Samantha, has anybody asked questions? Everybody's like loving you and sending love. I'm just mm -hmm. looking if anybody's asking you a question. No career advice, no <laughs> relationship advice, nothing. <laughs> She's being very diligent and very good about it. I'm looking at high peg, high tail. I'm looking, I'm saying hi, Penny. Penny's got the, the, the kugel getting ready for you. And, and David was on, David Laurel and Kim. They don't come better than Fritz Coleman, oh, personally oh, and nice. professionally, she That's says. Nice. Annette, hi, Phil, hi. Um, Michael Sims, uh, Simpson, always so connective and interesting. Mm, okay, that's good, I like that. Um, okay, so I'm just looking to see, Judy, what did, Judy, you are her favorite meteorologist. Okay, but you're not a meteorologist, is that the? But I play one on TV. But, she, but he plays one on TV. Um, so, is there anything, Fritz, that, that, like if you could map your path for the next chapter of your life, What's in there? What is it? What would you like? What would you love? I want to stay healthy for the growth of my children and grandchildren. Love that. Uh, I would like to continue to write. I love the writing process. Well, what is? Do you have a writing discipline? Um, I write in the morning for an hour or two if I if I have the time, depending on what the rest of my day is. You know, mm -hmm. the day job keeps getting in the way as it does with all art. <laughs> We're going to uh, talk about that in yeah, a second. Uh, so. Uh, I want to continue. I, I'm, I'm having fun with this show because some of the stuff's getting a little deeper now, talking about death and fun. It's still funny, but I, I'm really loving the layers that I'm laying into this thing. And it's, I think it's some of the best writing I've done in my whole career. I can't wait to. Will you come to Women Who Write and do of a little piece for us? Absolutely. I would love that. And we're going to have you back with Teo. I, I love the idea of bringing you back together. Yeah. So now. Do you talk in there about being a single person in, in this stage of your a life? A little bit. A little I talk bit. about what it takes to make a successful relationship, but we often don't learn those tips until we're old. And the key, although it's counterintuitive to some people, the key to a successful relationship is to just always let the other person win the arguments. Ooh. And what you have to do is, and people say, but no, but if I won the argument hands down, it's not honest. I said, it's not about honesty. You have to decide what's more important to you, self-esteem or peace and quiet. And the older <laughs> you get, the more it's peace and quiet. And, and what happens if you win an argument with you and your spouse? Mm -hmm. Does a referee with a striped shirt rush in? Hold up your arm and say, you're the you victor, there's a plaque and a trophy and a check. No, what happens is it just ignites resentment in the other person mm -hmm. that often lasts longer than your sense of victory you had in one, so just let them win. And I talk about that. I think that's pretty brilliant. There's some. There's an expression in the 12th, in the, the rooms, um, it's more important for me to, wait, what's more important, being right or being happy? And right, yeah, so it's so it's all about yeah. happiness. And My marriage, um, for many reasons, I'll just say that I'm an only child, and that'll explain a lot. Yeah, and uh, there's all the baggage that goes along with that. But uh, I was a person who had to be 
always right. Me too. Which is cruel and it's boring. And what made it worse in my situation was, so did she. Ooh. So our relationship ended up like the Vietnam War, where we would fight and fight and fight until one of us got tired and stopped. Neither of us had won, but we both proclaimed victory. And it went on that way for 20 years. Both proclaim victory. I love it. So Samantha, so Samantha has a has love in her life. Hi, Danny. So do you? It's a fairly new relationship. Four or five months. Is so this a, a school person? Yeah. Yes. Yay! And then does he have the same interests you do? Yes, he does. That's so fantastic. And so do you is guys fight? Yeah. He is an actor. Yeah. Oh, good. Go and on. he's from Australia. He's a wonderful accent. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> Even if he's yelling at you, it's charming, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, he's charming yeah. and adorable. But they're they're lovely together. But I'm wondering, do you guys fight? Do you ever fight? Not really. I mean, we have we bicker a little bit, and then we joke that we got in our first fight. But we so haven't really gotten in like a so fight. So being right isn't really important to you guys? No, we're both really stubborn, but we're also both Pisces, so we're really adaptive to each other's moods. Ah. So if, if we're feeling argumentative, we both can kind of sense that in the other person, and we just sort of don't well, even try to argue. the problem in our relationship was that we were both Geminis, so it was four oh. people. I wonder if it's a product of having been married a couple. I've been married a couple of times, and and it hasn't, you know. Ultimately, they've ended. We're both sober. I'm wondering what gets us to the point. For me, it was it's recovery that gets me to the point of realizing that being right is not as important oh. as doing the right thing. Okay, that's the expression. No, right. It, it truthfully is. Uh, it, it's uh, it's honesty in all of your emotions. It's just honesty. It's honesty in, in everything. Because yeah. I was not honest when I no, was. No, no, I wasn't honest with myself or other people. Absolutely. So, so there's a maturity. Is it maturity? Well, I'm listening to Samantha, and they just kind of seem to get it. Is well, it a product of our times that we're I, better you, to each you other? You took the words right out of my mouth. What? I think the sexual uh, balance now. Yes. Uh, uh, the expectations for men and women are so different. Uh, it's more of an even playing field, mm -hmm. and there doesn't have to be a not enough of force. a even playing field. No, I know, no, no, yes. you're absolutely correct. Mm -hmm. But but I'm I'm comparing it to when I was young. Do, do was, media do do whether people get paid differently if they're men and women? By the way, um, I think they probably do. Mm -hmm. But I will tell you that what happens in media. Mm -hmm. Uh, which holds true in any part of the entertainment business, mm -hmm. you're paid by your value. So if you're a female mm -hmm. that everybody tunes into Channel 4 to watch, you will be paid accordingly because that's your bargaining chip. And somebody else will realize your value in town too. Although I think it's harder to get in a position to be valued. No, I, 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 I totally understand mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I just think the expectation between men and women is different now than it was when I was a child. I, I think that's true. And and I want uh, this Saturday, by the way, is the Women's March, which I didn't even know about until two days ago. I had lost track of it. So because they're not making a big deal about it, I hope everybody's going to be out there marching on Saturday across yeah. the country. Um, yeah. And we, I was going to do this at the top of the show, and I didn't. But I, before we go, I want to just ask you a couple things. So have you been watching movies? Um, yes, seasonal movie. I love that. Okay, so we went to uh, most recently we saw the wife. Did you see the wife? I did. 
That is speaking about female empowerment and those mm -hmm. things. I thought it was breathtaking. Me too. Uh, I thought her performance was spectacular. I got to talk to Glenn afterwards briefly. And, um, was as it a screening at the director's? It was. It was. It was at uh, the Harmony. It was. It was uh, sad. It was a sad screening. She was uh, brilliant. She and was. And that's a great sort of a microcosm of the female power. I mean, I haven't. I, I don't know people who haven't seen the film, but I think it's okay to say that she is a wife and a mother and a and the wife of a successful writer. Right. You know, there's another movie out now. That has that same theme. Really? Uh, but it's uh, set in 18th century Britain, oh. and it's the same dynamic, where the arc of the play is the is the husband not admitting who the real creative source was. What, what's the name I, of that? It's, it's, it's one word name. I'll, I'll tell okay. you. Okay. So the other thing. So we also saw. Have you seen Black Klansman? Yes, I loved it. Yeah. Okay, so we got to see that. Samantha got to speak to Spike, and Spike is an NYU alum. I know he was a teacher there too, right? Was Samantha? he? Uh, he may have taught uh, classes at oh, some point. I'm not sure. Well, he was he was fantastic, and I, I love the movie. I've seen it a few times. What, what oh, when we saw um, Bohemian Rhapsody, and okay. how phenomenal is that? Yeah, yeah. yeah that, it was and, and what you know, we we grew up with Queen. Yeah. I mean, right? That's all. Well, I thought the brilliant part of that movie was I always want because I was in the radio business. And it's like any other kind of business. They, they want to put you in a box. Mm -hmm. And everything at that time in Top 40 Radio was every song had to be two and a half or three minutes long. Right, right. And then Bohemian Rhapsody came out. And I think even before, like, Stairway to Heaven, which was eight minutes long. Right. But I always thought, wow. And it was a very complicated piece of music. Very. It's, it's symphonic. Mm -hmm. And I love the way they describe it. He wanted to do something that had all of art in one song, and I thought that's the reason. I don't even know how they came up with it. It was brilliant. I, I love that movie. Yeah, I did too. I'll tell you that one of, one of the, I, I don't know if Samantha's seen this. What? But one of my favorite movies of the year was Eighth Grade. Did you see that? And I didn't. No. And I really wanted to, and I never oh. got around to it. I, is, is, uh, can we stream? Can oh. we, is it on iTunes or something? I think it, you can rent it for like yeah, yeah. a couple of dollars. Yeah. 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 Is it? It's it's a uh, it's a young comedian, like a twenty eight year old comedian. Oh. Like, and his name is B B something. But it was so achingly real. It was all of the uh, the heartache and the rejection and the aloneness of being in eighth grade, which is a pivotal time, especially. Samantha had this a real experience in eighth grade. I would. I would. Oh, no, I was younger for you, sixth grade. Yeah. Yeah. It was breathtaking. Mm. And I, I wonder why um, it, it didn't, it didn't garner more awards. Of course, there's a lot of timing involved in those things. My yeah. One of my favorite movies of the year is Up For Nothing, uh, the, the Hate You Give. Did you see that? I never saw it. It's, it's phenomenal. Yeah. Absolutely phenomenal. And it's not, for some yeah. reason, in the circuit. Fritz, so the, 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 what I really do want to come back around to and end with is, do you have... You've managed to do what I aspire to, which is to merge creativity and commerce and to be able to do your art. So you have a day job that enables you to do it. Um, do you have any advice for Samantha, for people that are struggling to do that? If they don't get the person who walks in and says, hey, do you want to come be a, yeah. you know, what do you think? Oh, I mean, I, your daughter's very talented. I think if she just gives herself time, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's carving away the days and, and it's like rolling the dice. But uh, first of all, whatever you do, 
just love it. I mean, I know that's almost a cliche piece of advice, but just love it because if you're going to work hard at it and it's going to tear your soul out and you're going to get rejected <laughs> while you do it, be sure that you love it. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it's your own personally inflicted prison. Um, and then you have to strike the balance of, for instance, in my job, I, I do eight to ten hours a day at the station. Wow. But I have to keep fresh to be able to write. So I do all that stuff in the morning while I'm really fresh. So you have to do your art while you're still doing your job. That's the conundrum for artists. Though. So wait, so you're writing your, your other stuff, your yeah, stand-up. Yeah, I stand-up in the morning for a couple hours, an hour, two hours, and then rehearsing it, and then you go to work. So you always have to be religious about and be disciplined. Is, writing is a discipline. You, you, you have to do it at the same time every day. So what, what time are you writing usually? I write in the morning. Like, I get up and go for a ride on a bike, and I'm done by 9, and then I'll go to a coffee work shop. Work out first. Home. Yeah, and 9 to 11 o'clock. And so it's better for you in a coffee shop? Yeah. Yeah. I, I like a, that's the ADD part of me. I like a little white noise. I like, mm -hmm. I like you know, some stimulation on it. And do you write longhand? Do you write on the I computer? I write longhand on a legal pad. And wow. On the computer. Wow. My whole office is nothing but stacks of legal pads. Wow. It's gibberish. And so that. is part of that pro creative process when you transfer it, are you editing, revising, learning? Yeah. I mean, I don't get too precious about it anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, if I think I have a nugget, then I'll just try it out on stage before I sit there and parse every syllable. Mm -hmm. uh, just to see if it works, because if I'm barking up the wrong tree, then why waste all this time? Right. But the creative process, coming up with an idea and kind of honing it is part of the satisfaction of the thing for me. And then if it works on stage, that's the icing on the cake. I love it. Fritz, thank you so much. Oh, man, you're a great interviewer. It was fantastic. Well, I, I know I'm no David Laurel, but... Samantha um, needs to tone it down a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I, I thank you so much for doing this. You are, you are so beloved, and oh, you're, you're, such, you're, you're just uh, a magnificent presence. You, 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 you exude calm uh, and, and kindness and warmth, and um, there's a reason that you're as successful as you oh, are awesome. and that you've had it for so long. Thank you. We have a lot of the same friends, so I'm happy, I'm happy to be invited. Well, it was absolutely my pleasure. Bye, everybody. And so, um, before you go, so next week, Oz Noy, one of the greatest guitarists, I got to hear him live last week with uh, Willie, bass player from David Letterman, and, and Steve Ferroni, one of the greatest drummers of all time, played with Tom I Petty. I know Steve, he played you know, with Tom Petty. I yeah, Tom Steve. Petty for all those years. And Jeff Young on keyboard, plays with Jackson Brown and Bonnie Ray. And all of them are doing the show. Steve Ferroni's doing it, Jeff Young's doing it, Oz Noy next week. And then also at one of the, um, Candy Clark took me to a screening at um, Soho House uh, with Timothy Chalamet for Beautiful Boy, another great movie. And Samantha got to meet Timothy again. Um, but Burt Young was there. Burt Young. And so Burt Young's going to come and uh, I'm going to go to Burt Young's house and wow. he's going to do the show. And he's phenomenal. He's still cranking. He's amazing. And he's a fine artist. He's actually an amazing fine artist in addition to being a great actor. And... Um, and I'm working on Issey Morales, and I'm Issey, I'm coming for you. I've been trying to get this guy to commit to me for a long time. What a career he's at. What a career. He's Going back to uh, La Bamba. La Bamba, that's right. And uh, and still working constantly. Uh, nice man. You know, I haven't met him, and I'm, I'm, I really am looking forward to that. So we'll see you next week with Oz Noy and, in Hollywood. And thank you so much, Fritz Coleman. A pleasure. And thank you so much, Samantha. Samantha, when you get your Tony Award, mention my name. <laughs> well, there. See you next week. Thanks.